I have my opinions about promoting records. It's not my favorite part of <laughs> making the thing. Is this excruciating for you to do? This interview? Yeah, be honest. No, no, I don't okay. I don't consider this because you're asking a lot of really great, deep questions, but they're not always great, deep questions. In fact, they are never. <laughs> Usually the furthest I get is, uh, why did you call it Western Cum? I, I skipped that question only because it was quite obvious that it's one of the greatest album titles ever, so there's no reason <laughs> not to use it. Yeah, yeah, sure. I appreciate that. Welcome to Discography, the podcast that gives Gen X music maniacs a chance to smell like teen spirit again by connecting with a brotherhood obsessed with rating the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever mattered. I'm your host, Dave Gebro, and with three new episodes each week, you're going to gain a comprehensive knowledge of an act's history and output in the time it takes to listen to one album. And in this episode, we'll be turning our spray cans on Wand and Corey Hansen's solo trilogy. Along with our very special guest, Corey Hansen himself, who will be going through his entire catalog, every single release he's ever created by his own hand, and rating them all, every last one, from zero to five stars. Tonight's guest, Corey Hansen, is both a tremendously talented singer-songwriter and a motherfucking guitar god. He is truly as good as it gets. In the next hour, Corey talks with Discography about the tracks on each record that have driven him batshit crazy, the piece of advice David Berman passed along to him that wound up having a profound effect, and Corey's picks for his two best records, his worst one, and what he thinks is the best one song of all time. Okay, first things first, you need to know just how seriously I take this craziness. Discography is a music obsessive's dream come true. The guest and I explore an artist or band's entire discography in a futile but valiant attempt to reach a higher truth, which often is cleverly disguised as a nerdy compendium of star ratings and lists. The show's heavily researched and the music is always reassessed with fresh ears. We don't just cover albums. Uh-uh. We do a searingly honest deep dive analysis of all EPs, singles, comp tracks, relevant solo work, and sometimes bootlegs and live stuff. Every release is slapped with an objectively accurate star rating between 0 and 5, which allows us all. The real reason we do this, the Tootsie Pop reward at the center of the rock and roll lolly to come face to face with the true shape of an artist's overall arc. Coming up, we've got an interview with Testament's lead guitar shredder, Alex Skolnick, Mike Watt rating the entirety of the Minutemen's output, Mark Robinson from Unrest rating everything he's ever done, Robert Schneider from the Apples in Stereo rating everything he's ever done, and Will Hart from the Olivia Tremor Control rating everything they ever did. Oh, and Michelle Phillips rating everything she's ever done, alongside Mamas and Papas author Richard C. Campbell, who's written a brand new book about him getting kind of itchy. So don't miss out. Open up your listening app right now and subscribe. And for premium membership benefits that'll make you ask yourself, how is it even humanly conceivable that this is all the work of one man and one man alone, just visit patreon.com slash discography. We've got 100 episodes available exclusively on Patreon, and that number, as well as the discography inner circle, is growing exponentially by the day. That's patreon.com slash discography. 
And away we go then with Corey Hansen, psych tropes and record collection Easter eggs worn like a button slathered jean jacket turned a buttonless source of influence. Tonight's guest took the cosmic music of the preternaturally blissed out and immersed himself in the rule book until he somehow figured out how to rewrite the thing. Step one on the road to doing so went down 10 years ago when he whipped up drone prone art school combo wand. And then what do you know, this guy starts pulling a low key Genesis Phil Collins hopscotch release schedule with a trilogy of solo records, each progressively less cowboy obsessed than the last. Hats off to him because it takes a certain kind of confidence to go head to head with your own work so early in your career, but I'm assuming this guy could give a fuck. Lads and ladies way out in the twilight reaches of the subterranean cowpoke psych rock scuzz underbelly of the universe, it's Corey Hansen's grandpa's grandson, Corey Hansen. Good Lord. Wow. That, what an introduction. I don't think I've ever been graced with such a glorious introduction in my life. If that truly is the case, then every other person who's ever interviewed you is a loser. I think that's that's true. <laughs> Here's something kind of on the side. You know Metal Machine music, right? Yes. Okay. Is it, are you enamored with that record? I have a copy on vinyl. Okay, yes. good. Okay. So I had an idea and I'm sort of a Hal Wilner. So here's this guy responsible for the nastiest puddle of noise ever made. And the last thing he worked on before he passed away was ambient music for his Tai Chi practice. Oh, that's beautiful. I got to hear that. So that's the 180. So that made me think there should be a compilation called Metal Machine Muzak. And the only rule is the piece has to be 16 minutes and one second. I'll make a very long story short. I abandoned my career and I'm currently making peanuts, almost literally doing the podcast. So I was trying to think, how can I, besides the Patreon, actually do this? So Lou Barlow is working on one side right now. And it would be such an honor to have you on board. I don't have much, but if you need something to subsist on or no time limit as far as when you would get around to it, nothing hanging over it except 16 minutes, one second. Mm, Okay. I'm interested. I'm a huge Lou Reed fan. I actually saw him for on the New York tour. Oh, shit, really? Amazing, yeah, that was amazing. I got um, in an argument with him once. <laughs> you did? I did, over hi-fi sound at a lecture in CalArts. Because my professor was his saxophonist. Oh, wow. And he's the guy that transcribed metal machine music and performed it. And Lou Reed got obsessed right. with him. They released that, didn't they? Yeah, the metal yeah. machine trio. And so I was like 19 and he was going off about how his new Julian Schnabel directed Berlin. The musical was superior to the original Berlin record. That's crazy. The sound, he's like, it just puts the other record and all my records to shame. You know, I wish that all my records sounded as good as this Berlin, the musical. And then I like, you know, being kind of bratty. I was like, you made a white light, white heat. Like that record sounds like shit. You know, it literally sounds like somebody put feces on it (laughs) and i mean it did something that no other record did at the time it's the record that spawned you know like brian eno says every single person that had a copy of it like a hundred bands came out of that copy and yet somehow a lot of revolutions wind up being just functional decisions do you know why the self-titled third record was so quiet no all their gear, their amps and stuff were stolen. <laughs> Isn't that great? That's because, funny. And that came out of it. That's beautiful. Yeah. Man, that's that's amazing. 
So yeah, he got real Lou Reed on me real fast. So what'd he do? He was just like, what are you trying to say? Huh? And then he's like, listen, man, all I'm saying is when I was a kid, I used to go to this hi-fi store and I would take any record I had and I would go to this Wilson audio system. I would put the record on and I would listen to it and be like, this is how it's supposed to sound. And one day, I'm going to be able to buy that sound system. And 10 years ago, I bought it. And now I listen to all my records on that. And he's like, you got to start somewhere, you know, like I did, but then you got to have somewhere to go unless you just want to be poor your whole fucking life. And I was like, oh, shit. So he gave a profound answer. Yeah, yeah. No, he was great. Yeah, yeah. And, that's uh, amazing. Yeah, it was cool talking to him. Especially around that time, the writing that Lester Bangs did about him and the interviews, it's as close to your poetry as any rock writings ever come. Oh, yeah. Yeah, some of those interviews are just amazing. Oh, the greatest. Yeah, right around that time when he was with Rachel, which at the time, it was not very hip to be transsexual. And so the writing about her is very dismissive. It also makes it feel like extra weird the whole scene but in any sense it truly would be an honor to have you on your schedule sounds batshit crazy right now let me see what i can put together i'm down i think that would be great would love to also also you're in good company the worst thing is 99 percent of compilations have one band you're interested in the rest is bullshit ultimately what i would love to have is laurie anderson doing side four but Holy i don't shit. i don't i don't know how conceivable that would be wow Dude, that would be amazing. But if not her, I would like Kim Gordon to do something. Oh, shit. That would be amazing. Yeah, that's what I have in mind for the fourth side. All right. Well, yeah, sign me up, man. Fucking hey, Whatever you need. We'll just keep in touch about it, okay? Yeah. Awesome. Good. I could not be any more psyched. Hi, I'm Dave Gebro. I threw my career as a licensed hearing instrument specialist in the trash, sold my house, and moved to the East Coast with my wife and four-year-old son in order to focus on making the ultimate podcast for music obsessives thrive. Now I need your help. Although Discography is rated in the top 2% of all podcasts globally, the economics of this thing are tricky. My monthly income at the moment totals a whopping 760 bucks. Becoming a member of Discography's Patreon gives you access to over 100 more episodes, and moving forward, you'll get up to three shows a week. There's the main show every Friday, Wednesday's brand new series, The Top Ten, and Monday's Wildcard episode, which could be anything from interview bonus material, our buried treasure show, Rock Cousteau, our slag off show, Queasy Listening, and exclusive limited series like The Private Press with Paul Major. And if you've got no financial worries to speak of, Keep in mind that some of the higher Patreon tiers allow you to actually advertise on the show, choose the bands we cover, or even some of the guests we get. For the price of a cup of coffee a week, you can ensure my family's fed, build a music library that'll be the envy of your block, and connect to a thriving community of music maniacs all at the same time. Don't risk feeling badly about yourself by not giving. Patreon.com slash Discograffiti. Once again, that's patreon.com slash discography. And now back to our expertly crafted program. So, you know, A Thousand Days could easily have been the first record, I think, of phase two for you. But I put it at the end of phase one because, to me, this is the ultimate statement made by Wand Mach 1. And now I'm actually realizing, Daniel's on this or not on this? He's not. So it's not even Mach 1. It's kind of like a Mach 2 that never had another release. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those records, those first three, I attribute those mostly to Evan and Lee and I. I mean, we were the ones, we were always together and always working on music and woodshedding these songs. And they were there for the entirety of the making of those first three. Phase two 
Cue a more innately understood and less literal take on psych, loosely draped upon your latter-day work, like the lived-in singer-songwriter robe depicted on the cover of Nilsson Schmilson. 2016 to present. All right, so Unborn Capitalist from Limbo. Tell me about the derivation of the idea of doing a solo record. Is this something that had been bubbling under for a while? It had been percolating through that first year of Wand when we toured on Ganglion Reef, Golem, and 1000 Days. It was like eight 18, 20 months of just straight grueling. Like we were gone eight months. We went to Europe twice. We toured the US three times. We did several West Coast tours and we were just out as much as we could possibly be. And I think in that time, we got louder <laughs> in the Golem period. We just got insanely fucking loud and I was over it. I needed a break and I needed to do something that wasn't going to feel so like suffocatingly vibrational and Sonic. So I wrote those songs and I remember being in the van with Wand while we were touring on A Thousand Days and I was like, I'm going to make a record that's like a chamber pop strings record. Everyone was like, okay, yeah, go do that, man. Whatever. I was like, all right, fuck you guys. And then I, <laughs> <laughs> so they were dismissive or? No, it was just one of those things, you know, where we were just exhausted as a band yeah. by the end of that year. Then I just went and made the record and worked with my friend Heather Lockie, who I've known since Cal Arts days, and she's a great violist, and she used to play in Spiritualized. Oh, cool. And uh, She's crucial to this record. She arranged everything. I would send her voice memos of ideas for things, and we put the whole thing together for String Trio. It was an acoustic affair, the whole thing, and it was very quiet and very fun to make. Have you ever heard Return of the Frog Queen by Jeremy Enoch? It's, no. uh, you know, the guy from um, Sunny Day Real Estate. Okay. So he did a solo record, and I would be really shocked if he didn't love it. And it kind of reminds me of this vibe, in, in other words, like a self-contained sonic universe. Universe, almost like watching a film. Because of that, it invites so many repeated listenings. I actually prefer it to Pale Horse Rider, which I know got more of the acclaim, but I think this record is amazing. I really, really like it. And you feel the same. You gave it four stars. I give it four and two thirds. But this feels like you'd been making solo records for a long time. Very fully realized there's no songs I don't like. There's songs on here that are towering works of greatness to me. I mean, again, landing the plane beautifully with Arrival. And then the title track itself, your influence pool, I could be reading into it, it seems now to have kind of shifted to Skip Spence's Orr or Mayo Thompson. I don't know if that's the case. Had you listened to either of those guys? Or? I mean, I'd listened to Red Crayola a bit, but I think at that time I was more coming from like Arthur Lee and mm -hmm. Forever Changes. And I feel like there was a lot of Anglo folk shit going on. And it's kind of the last remnant of Anglo obsession that that I had <laughs> with the first three records and then the solo record and then things kind of moved into a very um, American focused folk country and rock craft. Yeah, I like this side of things for you. It feels like a natural fit. There's a couple things that feel like they have a more modern derivation sonically, but mostly like you're saying, like Violent Moon, that feels to me like the King's Two Sisters. I mean like a feel that's similar to it. it doesn't sound like the same melody or anything. So the influence pool here is super interesting. But, you know, Garden of Delight, I hear a little bit of a more modern influence. Same with Ordinary People. You know, Flu Moon, I hear Arthur Lee all over that. Yeah, this is a truly great record, I think. And I feel like it's the most undersung record of your entire career. Yeah, I guess it might be, huh? <laughs> 
Because people have talked quite a lot about your last two solo records. This one is just as good as the other two. By the way, also hearing a little bit of After the Gold Rush here. Sure, yeah. I mean, that's a big record for me. And then Plum, I had read that it was written during what you described as a period of change and loss. Do you mind me asking what was going on during that time that served as a foundation for all these incredible songs that come out? I mean, we had just gotten together as a five piece with Sophia and Robbie. In that time, Evan Burroughs' dad was undergoing a lot of cancer treatment and then kind of very quickly deteriorated at a certain point right before we were scheduled to record the record. So there was a lot of that. I mean, he was just trying to cope with that loss. And I had gone through like a pretty substantial 20s breakup mm -hmm. that now seems kind of insignificant and funny to me, but was, right. you know, was definitely something that was producing a lot of these songs about loss. And, and I was listening to a lot of records about loss, songs of love and hate, the Leonard Cohen record, I was listening to that a lot. And Garcia, yeah, those were the main two things that kind of encapsulate that period feeling-wise and kind of shape those songs and the lyrics because Evan and I were working on the lyrics together. It was a challenging time and we were just in the studio or in our practice space every day, like five days a week, just writing the material and rehearsing mm -hmm. it together, entirely together. And it was the first time that I had opened up the songwriting world of Wand to everybody else. And, you know, there was a lot of reluctance on my part to kind of share that space, you know, because it's like, well, why this worked perfectly well before. But when you get to a certain place with a band where you've been touring and recording and everybody has this kind of shared investment in the thing, in the entity, it's about like, let's preserve this investment because like, that's what's working more than the songs to me. Right, is, right. Like, I would not be able to keep this up if my band was shit, if the drummer was shit or if it was impossible to get along and if touring was just like a living hell we're all pretty good sports and sensitive decent people so it was like yeah let's open this up because we all deserve to get life affirmation out of this beyond just the very small amount of money that we're making off of this project and by the way at this point do you still have a day job no no day job at what point did you have your last job i think 2005 I was doing gigs as a, um, like a PA on commercial sets. Okay. That was maybe the last time I did that. That's pretty good. Eight years, man. Let's keep it up, all right? Oh, yeah. Jobs still suck, by the way. You're not <laughs> yeah, missing no. much. I know. <laughs> At least yeah. I think they do. I, I abandoned my career so I could do this full time. <laughs> I did. I, yeah, yeah. I was a hearing instrument specialist. I fit hearing aids. But I was putting up three shows a week. I had had a bunch of medical stuff, too. A ton of medical stuff. And I just took a prompt left turn. But looking at the track listing of Plum, everything is great. I mean, all the songs are fantastic. They're all different. You got stuff that isn't afraid to revisit where you came from, like High Rise. But then you have some other stuff that really is looking toward the future, like B Karma, which is so good. You know, even some, you know, pulling from some very, what seems to me like really unexpected inspiration pools. Plum feels to me like a sad twist on Mr. Blue Sky. Huh. Those piano chord blocks. Yeah, yeah, sure. I can see that. Just a lot of really 
really great experimentation here that winds up not feeling experimental at all. But, you know, these were the way these songs were supposed to wind up. And I'm glad you feel as positive about it as you do. You gave it a perfect rating, five stars. This is, I think, the only record besides Spiders in the Rain that you gave five stars to. Yeah, yeah, I think... So uh, this is your favorite studio release of all time that you've done? I believe so, yeah. We put a tremendous amount of work. I think more than any record I've ever done, this is the one that charted the course you know, we put in the hours, we toured this record into oblivion, and I learned how to listen. I learned how to respond. I learned how to play well with others. I think <laughs> it sounds like a day. kindergarten report card. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was, it was like that. It was like yeah. a learning experience, like a, a behavioral experiment that yeah. we all had to figure out. I think the same was true for, for everybody in the band is like just figuring out how to compose this music as a five piece and what to do and what our interests were and all that shit. Was there any talk with Drag City about trying to make The Trap one of the most unexpected hits of that year? <laughs> no, there was no chatter about that. I don't think that song, I mean, it's too slow to be a single, I feel like. It feels to me like U2's One or R.E.M.'s Everybody Hurts. It's like one of those kinds of songs. Yeah, it's very catchy for sure. Yeah. Very sad. But, it, but there's a universality to it that I feel like people outside of the typical Juan sphere would be like, who are these guys? Just one non-A&R dude's opinion. So did the songwriting process change? Yes. Yeah, very much. Like, I, I think most of that record, I would bring in little things. Driving, I brought in complete. I was like, this is a done thing. And that was maybe the last song that got brought in. But Be Karma was constructed out of several jams that we did. Plum was, I made the chord change and came up with the vocal melody, but then everything else, I had no lyrics, I had nothing. Charles de Gaulle, also just a jam. That was the beginning of us really uh, relying on improvisation and the way we play together. Like I still have all of the voice memos and things that we did on our phones. This must have been a product of improvisation, but my favorite thing about this song is how the drums pick up a gallop toward the end, but then the rest of the band doesn't feel like rising to the occasion of the drums. So it's so lonely because he's doing this thing. The rest of the band's like, nah, we're not feeling that. But then the freakout section pulls the whole unit together. And then you got Phil Spector, Christmas record, sleigh bells going on. <laughs> This is probably my favorite song on the record. I mean, Charles de Gaulle and White Cat. White Cat is just batshit crazy. And I love this song. It feels to me like that guy M who did that song pop music was fronting Noi. <laughs> I really okay. love White Cat. I mean, that one is developed quite a bit. Still, it just changes all the time. and it, it just keeps expanding and contracting. In a lot of ways, it's, it's become something that it's like our, sounds ridiculous, but- Your like Dark Star. Dark Star, yeah. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> I, you know, the thing that's most prominent about it is how much fun you guys sound. Just bashing out with gleeful abandon. It sounds like you're having a blast doing it. Yeah, I, I don't think we- were at that stage huh. yet like enjoying we were searching for something but i don't think it was difficult that record was a pain in the ass in a way the other records were not because there was a kind of growth spurt that was like a puzzle we couldn't solve until our brains had developed enough to solve it or something. Hmm. We were just really struggling to figure out how to listen to each other and allow space in that time. And then once that breakthrough happened, then everything else 
followed very quickly and mm -hmm. the way that we play together now just accelerated very quickly so you're saying the band that is wand in 2023 this was the foundation for that to take place totally especially in the way that we create records together now it just keeps expanding on that initial idea still good communication like the emotional components of a shared group mind informing what you guys do yeah yeah i mean i think like i said it's like the best thing that we can do for each other usually the answer to all the problems is just to play the thing that makes everything way more difficult and weighty is uh when someone tries to inject an idea by force into the project mm -hmm. then it starts to feel like what's happening <laughs> right because <laughs> you're not yeah the song wants to be a certain way the work whatever it is wants to be a certain way so you're either listening to it or you're loitering in an ego zone yeah and and the best thing to do is always just let the music whatever it is dictate where things go and don't ever tell anyone what to play that's my lesson to myself it's like <laughs> stop telling everybody what to play right so when you have an idea about how something should go someone else's contribution does it always wind up being a better thing or is it just even if it's not quite the way you imagined it and you don't like it as much ultimately it winds up being a better thing because of the group feeling i think it, it all just gets massaged you know it's like initially i can have all kinds of feelings about something or be like i don't quite understand this but then you know through the process of tracking and in this record that we're just finishing like the majority of the work was overdubs we just threw the kitchen sink at every single song and saw what stuck and so there was a lot of deliberation a lot of deliberation about what is to come what to add or subtract from the composition you know in the end but usually it's just let people try stuff just let people have fun with it in the end that's what i really want to hear rather than the perfect you know surgical guitar line or the perfect melody or something it's like i, yeah. I have no interest in any of that stuff anymore i like things that just feel like, like they're responding expressively creatively to a music thing that's happening that next year in 2018 you came up with the perfume ep and and just based on your rating of it, I can tell that, you know, you're not as taken with this. Tell me about the project and if it was considered as an EP first off or how it wound up being. Well, it, it started as three or four songs that didn't make it onto Plum and they were all totally completed, but we just had too much material for a single record. So I thought like, well, let's just make an EP. And then we ended up, of course, like making an album length EP as we could only do. It's literally like two minutes shorter than most of your other albums. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I like the record, but it's the one I would probably revisit the least. I mean, some of the songs I think I like more than the Plum songs, you know. Some the, the, the title track Plum. is unbelievably great. But it couldn't exist in that world. With records, it's sometimes painful, but you have to fucking gut the thing because you got to be brutal and, and really just listen to like flow and vibe, you know, otherwise you get something that's lopsided. This pulls energy from its neighbors because of its bigness, its largesse. So yeah, to have that in a record where it's a very democratic thing, where no song is king, it would probably feel a little lopsided. I could definitely see that. My favorites on this one are the title track, which is just breathtaking, Town Meeting and Train Whistle. Oh yeah, I forgot Town Meeting's on that. Yeah, that, that song is one of my favorite Juan songs. 
it's a lot of fun to play live. Sophia's work on that, that one chord, that nightmare chord that she holds down, that's my favorite stretch of the song. That's just pure inspiration right there. It doesn't really seem to be having as much fun with itself in the middle section of the record, but I still like it more than you. I give it three and three quarters. And if I have anything to say that's not gushing, I feel like too much of it skews toward a more normal type of songwriting that I just personally don't find as appealing as like White Cat. Mm-hmm. where it's like you're just barreling down the corridors of musical discovery, just going nuts. It's still good songs, but it's just not like White Cat for me. So anyway, I give it three and three quarters. I still like it more than you. And then um, 2019, Laughing Matter, which at an hour and seven minutes, definitely your longest, most sprawling, and most playlist-like record yet. And mm-hmm. you really, I think, make it work in your favor because you basically take that gloriously scattershot aesthetic that plum had and you just shoot it into the stratosphere. I think this is the best wand record. And I, I talk in objective absolutes. This is this is my favorite wand record. Please excuse the way that I speak because it's it's very much like that. But yeah, <laughs> Laughing Matter, I love every song on the record. There's not a single song I don't think is great. And it's 15 songs and it goes on forever and I'm never bored. <laughs> and it's fucking great, man. I could pick anything from this. Rio Grande, incredibly heartfelt. You want to talk about your propensity and preference for writing sad songs. This is a really emotionally affecting song. It's in my top five songs you've ever written. Oh yeah, that's. I think that's probably my favorite Juan song. In terms of a joy to make and write, that was the last song that was written for that record. We wrote it in the hmm. studio when we were on the Rio Grande in Texas. Wow. It just, yeah, it was something that just could have only come out of high accumulation of fucking time spent around each other, just playing and playing and hammering through shit and improvising and talking about improvisation. And then that was like the end result. And it felt really gratifying and affirming to like have that be the last piece from that particular band in a studio setting, you know, before the five piece was done. And and I do think it's like kind of the, yeah, I, I think it's the best one song. <laughs> That's interesting. That's the last wand song that you recorded, right? Or that's been released. Is that right? That's the last wand studio moment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're we're definitely on the same page then because I went right to that song. Um, (laughs) Is it a song that a lot of people point out or do you feel like it's more of a personal card you're carrying up your sleeve? It's not the most well known and it's pretty deep in the record too. It is. So it, it might be if you're already overwhelmed by a band that has like a lengthy discography and then you're gonna go into a double record and just randomly pick a chapter how do you sequence an album like this how the fuck do you sequence this sequencing any album with a bunch of other people is i mean sequencing an album by myself is, is even if you were by yourself <laughs> listen I, in, in all honesty i mean you look at plum and laughing matter would be in the top one percent most difficult types of albums to sequence yeah robbie sequenced plum he just gave a sequence and i was like good let's be done with this and, right right and i think one of the reasons i gave it the highest score was because i think the flow is really great from song to song laughing matter we had more songs than could fit on a double record and so we were like horse trading there and it was difficult we had this the record it was probably like another 15 minutes 
longer. And I demanded, I actually made an 11th hour cut that said like, we need to pare this down. And if I had had another, you know, week to think about it, I probably would have cut it into a single record. So how many songs would you take off? I don't know. Half of them. (laughs) That's so funny because, (laughs) so, you know, that perennial white album argument, like it would make a perfect single. Are you, you're not one of those proponents, are you? No, no. No, of course not. We conceived of this record as a double record out the gates. So it was like, this is isn't something you're going to listen to necessarily in a single sitting, but you're going to digest side by side. You're going to gravitate towards certain sections of the record. Like it's like a multi-dimensional thing. You can flip it on a different side or a different axis or whatever. Still, I think that was the right move for this record because it is so varied and we had a lot of different kinds of songs we were working with. But I often wonder what kind of badass fucking single this would have been if it was sequenced by Robbie. Yeah, but there's nothing that even approaches outtake quality on this. So it would kind of have to necessitate a Kid A amnesiac kind of a deal. Yeah, I think there probably would have been two records, which would have been fun. But I think we brought our A game. The whole record, I think we just fucking brought it and... It's great. The part of the record that really makes me think most of your early career is the one-two punch of Rio Grande and Airplane. Because first of all, you know, Rio Grande, I'm thinking as it's going on, I can't believe this is the same guy who, you know, dot, dot, dot. And then Airplane is really the card flip because it's a slow simmer, not an explosion. But at over nine minutes, that build, it's true psych without using the psych signifiers that would tripwire that kind of a feeling. In mm-hmm. other words, it doesn't take the easy way out. It really just goes for a more organic quality that's embedded within the songwriting itself rather than the production tricks. You had to have been thinking of the White Album when you were making it, right? Of course. Yeah. And like f- physical graffiti, the wall, and <laughs> all the doubles. I really think you hit the mark. I think it's incredible. And I give it a solid five. I think it's excellent, especially to keep up a listener's interest over that kind of time period with so much disparate material where you're not fumbling the ball on any count whatsoever. It's very impressive. It's funny, based on your initial recording schedule since then, you would have released 12 albums. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we took a little siesta, I guess. Along with the rest of the universe. Along with the rest of the universe. Yeah, things really were not collaborative during the pandemic, besides doing this live record, which was a lot of fun. But things changed a lot. And we, as a band, were kind of left in a space of reflection about what had transpired over those four or five years as a five-piece. You mean question the existence of the band? it should continue or oh yeah i mean i think we're always keeping that in check being like do we have a pulse (laughs) and like is this going to keep going and of course it always it just continues i would imagine those guys don't bring that topic up the guys being the other band members yeah that's what i mean it's like an open door situation anyone can leave and the idea is hopefully potentially the band will just form around whoever's there and that'll be what we do the conversations during covid there weren't many we're having meetings and stuff but i think lee and sophia even before that in 2000 19 had expressed interest in leaving the band either semi-permanently or permanently and now they have gone and it's opened up a lot of new space to continue to work on things and it's just different in a good way which is cool nobody wants to be in a band with people that don't want to be there no sure (laughs) and 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 to me it's a matter like i know a lot of band leaders i still consider myself 
kind of the de facto leader. They get really upset or feel betrayed or whatever, you know, bullshit. I don't really feel that way at all. I just want people to be fucking happy and, and feel like they're doing something that's important with their life. And yeah. if that aligns with the band, even for a minute, then that is like purely magic. And then if it goes away, then it goes away. Well, it's a great attitude to take because I would imagine that that's the kind of uh, soil that a, a great band needs to flourish and to not go away because you do have a great thing going and it's great to have that kind of attitude because you know i'm sure it could be miserable to be in a great number of bands most of them because of that not being the case that not being in the air that kind of freedom but this is a special thing you have but and also the people you work with on your solo stuff it's special in a different way and both feed the other just like our man phil collins <laughs> yeah so what would you say the main changes in feel have been and have befallen the band since the time of Laughing Matter? Oh, well, Backer, Evan Backer. I speak of these two Evans by their last name. So Burroughs. A Backer's a, a perfect two. name. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he joined Wand and he plays bass now. He plays he's, bass? Yeah. So he's playing bass in Wand. He's playing drums in the solo band. Okay, got and, it. And he's like a truly brilliant musical mind. Can do anything, can play anything. He went to school for composition. He's a studied composer at CalArts and, and I was in the art program, but we hung out. Like I took a lot of classes in the in the music school yeah so since he's joined and it's a tighter group you know it's just four people and four is very different than five it just feels more fluid in a sense because there's less to check up on we just kind of jump into things very quickly and, so just uh, to double check it's you evan who else it's me evan evan robbie oh pardon my ignorance didn't know those changes had taken place much different feeling totally and it's been good and i think this record we've got cooking is fucking insane i can't <laughs> wait I, I mean i i certainly i hope most if not all of what you've recorded comes out if mac demarco could get away with that data dump then you can certainly get away with five <laughs> albums worth oh yeah i mean there's more than that i mean there's 50 hours of unreleased sign know, me up touched material look if you don't think i would be able to get through it i will tell you that <laughs> i have a download of the complete europe 72 literally every single show of that whole tour and i've heard oh, the whole shit. thing yeah. Wow. How many hours is that? I don't even know. I, I can tell you how long my Grateful Dead playlist is, though. Let me tell you, because I recently added to it. It's my longest playlist, which is not hard to believe. 14.7 days. Holy shit. Wow. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. So you would just devour this 50 hours like it was nothing. Yeah. Like that 24 hour flaming lip song. I've heard the whole thing. <laughs> Before we proceed, I want to go back and just say that your wandering bass lines in Unborn Capitalist from Limbo are, Mwah! and that's the, <laughs> you know, the chef kiss with the fingers on the lips. I'm oh, doing, thank that. You. I'm do thank I'm doing you. that thing. Yeah. So Pale Horse Rider. So we go from 2019 to this is the first time you're skipping a year and a release right mm -hmm. all right so the gestation period shows this is recorded out in the mojave desert and you can definitely hear that sort of high lonesome desert whale it's you backer heather Lockie, and tyler nuffer the crew so first thing i need to know is this is a very straight-faced serious record with an ad campaign that would have been perfect stylistically for western com in terms of playfulness what was the notion going in with such an interestingly at odds campaign <laughs> well i wanted it to be very at odds yeah. you know i wanted it to feel i i have my opinions about promoting records it's not my favorite part <laughs> of it, making the thing is this excruciating for you to do this 
interview? Yeah, be honest. No, no, I don't okay. I don't consider this because you're asking a lot of really great deep questions, but they're not always great deep questions. In fact, they are never <laughs> usually the furthest I get is uh why did you call it Western Come? That's the question on every uh, music journalist's mind. I skipped that question only because it was quite obvious that it's one of the greatest album titles ever. So there's no reason not to use it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sure. I appreciate that. But yeah, it has to be flipped on its head in order to be bearable. Something has to be twisted about the format because every record is different. Every record sounds different. Every record was made in a different place by different people, but they all are promoted exactly the same. They do the same things. And I think it's just boring to me. Why do I just really single after single, you know, try to make a video where I like look presentable and sexy or whatever. And in your heart, do you want to be an evil podcast host that wants to make a country grunge album? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, nobody wants to be that guy. I think that only Keith would want to be that guy. And I don't think he wants to be him anymore. I tried to wrangle him to do something for this record. And he was like, dude, I need to take a little break. You can only be the villain for so long until you start getting typecasted. So yeah, I wanted to make something where the ad campaign just felt like aesthetically, fundamentally was at odds with the music that was put down. If that carried over to Western Come, then the ad campaign would be completely straight faced like Pale Horse Rider's <laughs> music. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, But I, I think I had just discovered a thing about humor and music that felt like it had been missing from the Juan stuff and was missing from my solo stuff. My sense of humor is just such a huge part of the way I think about the world, the way I cope with the world. Yeah, sure. And, and not involving that just felt like I was losing something by not showing that shit off. Not every record benefits from a Weird Al sensibility, however. <laughs> <laughs> Sure. Jury's out, you know, if Pale Horse Rider benefited from that. I mean, it was far more successful than... The That's record. not what I'm referring to. I'm just saying in general, I think it was cool that you did that. Obviously, for the type of record it is, it itself would not benefit from a sense of humor because that's not the space that this record inhabits. And you've got a serious cowboy fixation, brother. <laughs> Like a ser like there's a like a clip clop cow hoof. You're talking about high plains drifter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, this is like in you. Where's that coming from? I think the country music. That's like the first music I ever heard. It's 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 like a part of my DNA because my mom was a country singer. Oh no shit! Um, wow. She's still alive, but she doesn't really perform anymore or do any of that. But she was just like, I mean, my mom's a school teacher, public school teacher, and then at night she would go play at the country clubs. Not a country club but a like country bar did she write yeah she wrote and made a record when i was 12 or 13 that is so cool and she just did it for herself she didn't do it for any other reason she just loved to do it and was always very encouraging you know about me making music and stuff but the first instance that I can remember thinking about songwriting was just walking into my mom's room and she's just sitting there with an acoustic guitar writing in a notebook. This was just like a part of the daily world. So uh, your parents must be so beside themselves proud of you. Yeah, they like the music. They're fans. Yeah, but I mean, beyond that, just, you know, are you a parent? No. I'm not, I don't have a child yet. Are you married? I'm actually getting married. Nice. Yeah. Like really very soon? soon? Very soon. Couple nice. months. Nice. Nice. Congratulations, man. Thank you. Uh, big wedding, small or? Small. Good. 
But anyway, talk about the world's biggest deviation. Pale Horse Rider, I love specifically the songs on the back half. Vegas Nights, another story from the center of the earth. Again, landing the plane in incredible fashion with Pigs, which is a sweeping epic of a closer. Is Pigs a special song for you? Oh yeah, I love that song. I think that's my favorite song on that record, for sure. How do you feel looking back on Pale Horse Rider? I feel great about it. I love that record. I had a lot of fun making it and it feels like that record that was the moment that I I kind of got turned on by my roots, like where I realized like, oh shit, I've been living country music and living jazz my entire life. You know, it's like the, the kind of thing, how do I explain it? It's like something where it's like, it's there and it's always present, but I'm not acknowledging it. I'm just like, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, my mom was a country singer and blah, blah, blah. Like I listened to that shit. I listened to tons of jazz as well, like when I was a kid because of my dad, but I never like actively listened to it. And then just in writing those songs writing pale horse rider i was like where is this coming from you know this is so different i wrote that right after unborn capitalist was finished and i was just kind of perplexed i was like where's this cowboy shit coming from and then i'm surprised you feel that way because the two sound certainly a hell of a lot more similar than pale horse rider and western come sound they sound kind of of a piece to me maybe it's yeah. the musicians sure or the instrumentation or something because i feel like lyrically and conceptually there's more common ground between western come and pale horse rider and a lot of ways western come is like a companion to pale horse rider it's just like i took a different route and i turned the guitars up and i made it about electric instruments instead of acoustic soft understated instruments is your favorite song on the record angelus no (laughs) no i think pigs is definitely my favorite angelus was a struggle to write every record has like a white whale for me yeah like a song where it's like i want to fucking just conquer (laughs) this thing and i did though you did it drives me to the point of madness and somehow the integrity of the project gets wrapped Uh up into the song and for that record it was definitely angelus yeah every record i have like laughing matter lucky sight plum it was perfume which didn't end up on the record right um which was a right decision for sure yeah yeah there's one on every record i've ever done you just think yourself right into a hole basically i bet there's at least one time during the gestation of every record where you're just literally screaming absolutely yeah i think yeah i mean i had a couple bad head trips during pale horse rider because i was trying to write something that was beyond my abilities up to that point like i've never really considered myself up to that point as like a a strong lyric writer like i'll write lyrics and i think i'm a a great editor because i'll just write and write and write and write and write and then break it down into some good nuggets of lyrics but i had this conversation with david berman from silver juice purple mountains before he passed and he was like listen man you're a good live band but that'll only take you so far or something like that oh so he was like super honest with you about stuff yeah and and then he said like you gotta get these lyrics right you gotta make things that stick he's like you got to get these lines and you got to make them stick he said like do this thing he gave me some very practical advice which is every day you got to work out your writing like a muscle just write 20 lines each day and don't think about any of the lines don't think about their relation to each other or if they're good or not just keep writing write those every day and make sure that you read books or whatever and he said you do this every day and you'll build a body of work then you'll have that to go back and you know anytime you 
you get stuck in a place with a line, you can go back and find something or get inspired by something or rework something. And you'll just be accumulating work constantly. And you'll be working out your writing muscles while you do it. And I was like, oh, that's pretty good advice. So I did yeah. that. And that was how I wrote the majority of the lyrics on that record. And then, you know, of course, he fucking died in the yeah. middle of me making that record right or right before i went into the studio and then it just became this kind of head trip of like well fuck i've been doing this process that he told me to do he's passed on and i could hear him you know his voice in my head just like pushing you know trying to get me to stay focused on the lyrics and stuff so that was a big part of it i never met him his death hit me really hard and at the time just like everyone else with any sense of taste i was listening to purple mountains on repeat and thinking about you know just the craziness of booking a whole tour and then doing that or what would go into the emotional panic of a moment like that it's just so difficult to stomach even this far into things i've had bob nasanovich on a number of times and spoken with him about it they were good friends mm -hmm. it's like i met david foster wallace and someone like that who's housing a brain like that inside a skull it's got to be tricky when you're that smart you can think yourself right into a hole oh yeah i mean i don't think that his curse was his intellect i think that his curse was you know that he was the son of a of a father. Oh no, I think that was his privilege. <laughs> right, right. But right. Uh, I think I think he was just cursed with a darkness that overcame him, took him away, and took him from me and everybody else. And that feeling you're talking about of being like I was, like very invested in what was happening with the Purple Mountains and him getting back on his feet making records and stuff and then uh, having this tour booked and you know i'm friends with jarvis mm -hmm. uh, from woods and and cyrus who's gonna play bass in his band and texting with them the day like i was at the airport flying to europe to start a tour with wand and i was texting with cyrus i was like what the fuck just happened you know and he's like i don't know i went into manhattan and came back and he's dead it was like he just got ripped out of reality yeah and everyone was like, what, what the hell just happened? It was crazy. So the, those guys, they had no indication. It was just out of completely out of the blue. Yeah, yeah. None of those guys knew David super well. He had to have been glum, but I'm guessing it felt like a standard kind of glum. I mean, I think it's just hard to tell with it. Because you listen to his lyrics, you listen to that last record, and it's like, this it's, reads, a it's a suicide note. It reads like a suicide note, and it reads like he's just biding time, you know, before he does the the thing that he wants to do. And the lyrics are so fucking good on that record. They're incredible, especially Snow is Falling in Manhattan. I just can't take it. They're so perfect, the lyrics to that song. Singing a song about songs and songwriting and about how it's basically his final bequeathment to the universe. It's almost too much to bear to even consider that. Yeah, I think, I mean, he's a one in a million kind of brain, you know. He could order at McDonald's in a way that no one else, you know, <laughs> he could order that a burger and fries. That, that would, would blow reduce your us to tears. Mind. Yeah. yeah, we'd be weeping. <laughs> and you couldn't bump into a piece of furniture without, you know, doing something that would blow my mind. And it was sad because at the time I felt like, wow, this guy's giving me some advice. Like I haven't really written anything that is even close yet, you know, to anything this guy's done. And he has taken like an interest enough to, you know, give me some advice. And then he was just gone. Yeah.
that spirit, you know, that morning spirit kind of lingered through the creation of that record. It's a pretty steady hand to have you guided by. Definitely, you know, this goes without saying, hangs together. The only song that kind of violates the aesthetic, but it fits perfectly, slides right in, is another story from the center of the earth. And it's one of those classic Cortez deals that you do that never feels derivative, but you always know, you know, the birthplace of it. But was there something that was super heavy going on during that time? It sounds like you were going through a lot of stuff whether or not you were it sounds that way like under yeah. the country genre signifiers i'm sensing real pain well yeah i mean there's always real pain <laughs> i don't think it was like autobiographical okay. pain i'm not digging for dirt it just sounds yeah. like something was going on this is a thing that people have told me in the past that that record has that quality to it but i think i was tapping into just like the emo nature of right. country music i mean there's just such a rich tradition of just being like oh over the top melodramatic, you know, melodrama about loss and heartbreak. I've written stuff before where my mom, her first response was, are you okay? And I feel <laughs> like this would be the are you okay record for your mom. Yeah. <laughs> the wellness, <laughs> the one that needs a wellness yeah, check. Exactly. The only song I've ever gotten a wellness check for was uh, The Trap. And that's interesting. Uh, yeah. Wayne Coyne texted me and said, Hey man, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, dude, I'm fine. I'm just hanging out in my house, washing dishes right now. And he's like, are you sure? I just listened to this song. And it's really sad. And that's I thought, funny. What I get from that song. And that's why I bring up one and everybody hurts is that they were able to take this emotion that probably made them feel like they were vastly different from everyone and connected in a universal way. So the trap sounds like you saying hello to the universe. Yeah, that wouldn't be a wellness check for me. Yeah, it is more of like a universal sing-songy kind of... I mean, it's like, he's got that Do You Realize song, you know? Yeah, totally. Yeah, that would be the correlative, I think, in their discography. This is the only one that you rated higher than me, which means you're a humble man of uh, humble origin. You give it four <laughs> stars, I give it three and a half. All right. Um, All right. That brings us to the only other record, which I don't rate live albums. But Spiders in the Rain is the only Wand album, I believe, that you gave five stars to, right? No, you gave it You gave it to, uh, to Plum. Yes. Okay, so this was a horrifying gestation period. We won't go too far into this because it's live, but I'm just curious, by the way, thank you for the 20-minute White Cat. and uh, Or Dark Star, I should say. Yeah, so if it was so difficult, did you ever think about maybe ditching the tapes, doing something with a different show, or would that have just replicated? You know, the issues that you were having getting it to press? Was so, it specifically because of these tapes or just the live album in general? No, it was just the, the pressing plants. They were all fucked up okay. at the time and the machines were going down. There was a COVID outbreak at one of the plants. And then later on, there was a COVID outbreak at the jacket place. It was just nonstop. Everybody was having this problem. You know, usually the one you look at and blame is like Adele or Fleetwood Mac or Ed Sheeran, yeah. Taylor Swift, you know, the people right, that all, right, the, right. the record label the majors all saw that vinyl was back had resurrected itself thanks to you know all these independent presses that took up the burden of upholding the industry so you know after the majors destroyed it and then the majors went and offered them a bunch of money and so they pressed all these fucking dumb records that aren't good so that people could hang them on their walls and stuff and it left every other band perpetually at the back of the line so that was the only shitty part about making this record everything else was pretty great. I mean, we mixed it ourselves. The 
performances were all really great. We cut them together from the best takes of like five or six shows. And then we would even splice in between takes. Like the white cat was cut together from all the different shows. It was a lot of fun and it kind of opened us up to the way that we're working now, which is taking large breaths of improvised music and then cutting them into compositions, a la Teo Macero, you know. Yeah, but the crazy thing about it is, and the real magic trick of what you do, is that it doesn't sound like these improvised sections. They sound like written, not in a bad way. They sound considered. They don't sound like it just was this thing that happened and you shaped something out of it. So that is a fucking very cool, unique feature of what you do. The criteria that we pull from is, does the thing have integrity on its own? Could it survive on its own without any overdubs or vocals or whatever? That's the starting point, you know? Yeah. But the re- yeah, I think the live record is a great document of the band, you know, as an entity. And I'm looking forward to making more of those. So this may be ultimately too geeky to keep in, but this is what I wrote about, you know, because I always at the end of it feel like I get some, perhaps some kind of understanding, perhaps not, about the overview and shape of an artist's arc. So I went to this summer camp at Wellesley College in Massachusetts, and it was structured like a fake college. And it's like a formative years thing where everyone has their first kiss, their first everything. There was a loading dock there at Wellesley College. The summer program was called Explow, like exploration. And there was a guy named Evan. And it's all the cool kids were there. It was like, you know, the punks. And we're talking, I went there from 86 to 89 or 90. So late 80s punk and goth. So there was a guy that wore a tuxedo every day in the blazing heat of the summer. uh, Kids with mohawks, etc. And then this kid that didn't have any of those external signifiers, right? So... That was Evan. So there's that guy over there. He's trying to just hang back and be cool because ultimately that's how being cool works. So if you try too hard to make other people notice how cool you are, you're ironically just immediately rendered uncool. So you can tell though that he obviously is cool, but it's like a stalemate because I'm not going to go walk over and jeopardize what I perceive as my coolness to inquire about his. And he just hasn't figured out how to passively communicate his wealth of knowledge, all of which is shot through with emotional resonance as well, but he can't afford to broadcast it. He hasn't figured out how. But then Post Golem is when everyone started flocking over to Evan. There was no longer an inner conflict about how to best advocate on his own behalf because that unknowable and unteachable thing about being able to successfully broadcast the right vibes, you figure it the fuck out. You used the exoskeleton of Garage Psych to create a chrysalis out of which you've pared away at the endless layers of influence that form that cocoon. So when you mess around with those signifiers these days, it no longer poses a risk to sink into the quicksand of derivative homage because you're flying way high up far enough above it now to teach that pool of greatness a thing or two yourself. Fuck yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So my top three records for you are Unborn Capitalist from Limbo would have been number four. Plum is number three. Laughing Matter is number two. And Western Cum is number one. I think your worst album is Golem. Agreed. (laughs) You agree on all of those? Western Cum's not your favorite. No, no. I don't know. I mean, Western Cum's so new, so it's hard to tell. I mean, my favorite thing is always what I'm working on next. It's always the thing I'm most excited about. That being said, you did give me a list. So based on your list, (laughs) let's see. What do you like better, Spiders in the Rain or Plum? I think Plum, yeah. 
All right, so Corey's list then is, I don't know what your third would be, but Spiders in the Rain's number two and Plum's number one. That seems good. I don't know yeah. what three is either. I love all my children. Golem's your least favorite. Yeah, Golem is down there, yeah. Yeah. You've had an incredible career, man. Your records are unbelievable as a music enthusiast. And I can speak for all the listeners, all the soldiers of sand out there all feel the same way. You know, the more serpentine the trawl, you know, the more roads taken up and abandoned and twists and turns, the more interesting it is. I definitely feel that way. Yeah. I definitely agree with that. Plug away, man. What do you got coming down the pike? How many hundreds of records are you releasing in the next year? <laughs> okay. What do I got going on? Well, I'm going to Europe in a week. Uh, I'm going there August 16th to September 9th, playing shows, promoting Western Come all throughout the European and UK world. And then after that, I'm going to go tour the United States in support of Western Come again. And uh, that'll be in late October through mid-November. And then I hope and, you're taking a bunch of time off, right? Dude, I wish. I don't get... I don't. I what month is your wedding? October. Oh. So early Dude, you, October. Make sure you take a honeymoon. Are you going to take a honeymoon? I am. I am. Yeah. Okay, no, good. I'm in the midst of planning it in between this interview. <laughs> Um, okay, because uh, we didn't do that, and we kept saying we'll get around to it, and it's fucking eight years already, so. Yeah, I want to do it, like, immediately. So that'll happen. That'll be a nice little resting thing. But yeah, and then next year's all along, all the time. I'm so psyched. This has been an incredible thing. I apologize profusely that it took so long for me to grok what it is that you're handing down to the universe, but here I am, and I'm definitely a big fan, without a doubt. Thanks, man. I think that's the great thing about records, is that they're always just there yeah just I, sitting around in a pile somewhere well to me one record is the keyhole into a vast discography so always that's what it represents to me yours held so many wondrous splendors and thank you for that Dude, my pleasure i could have gotten stuck with a real bonehead and it didn't happen <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's only been three hours and 50 minutes. Has this been the longest interview? If not, I need to stay on for as long as I need to, to capture that prize. <laughs> this is definitely the longest, but it's capturing my career over 10 years. So it feels appropriately long, but I probably should get to some other things. Yeah, you should probably go. Point. Thank you so much. All right. That about does it. A heartfelt discography thanks goes out to my beautiful wife and son, Jen and Mason, Rudy Fishman, Corey Hansen and Wand, Catherine and Drag City, my incredibly loyal fans, and especially the entire Patreon community, the Soldiers of Sound. I love every last one of you, and this show would not exist without you, my friends. Speaking of friends, it's high time for some new ones. They're in our Facebook group, Discography Soldiers of Sound. That's the best way to find out what's coming up on the show, but there's a hell of a lot more. You get recaps of the day in music history, the ability to pitch questions to guests, polls that put you in the driver's seat on guest and band decisions, access to a thriving creative hub if you're looking for a collaborator. Honestly, it is objectively the only worthwhile thing that's come from Zuckerberg's college efforts. So make sure you don't miss out. You can find the link to the Discography Soldiers of Sound Facebook page right there in the show notes. And if you don't mess with the Zuck, no sweat. Just email me at info at discography.com and I'll keep you in the loop. So now that it's done and you want more, another way to dive even deeper into the limitless wonders of deep psych rock drone is to dive headfirst into Lou Barlow rating the zombies. That's episodes 59 and 
160. Foxygen's Jonathan Rado rating Todd Rundgren. That's episodes 37 and 40. Anthony Fantano rating The Velvet Underground. That's episodes 32 and 33. And Pink Floyd, episodes 1 and 2. Join us during the upcoming week as we descend down, down, down on Discography's week-long Wand Part 2 Deep Dive. Of course, if you're a Patreon subscriber, then you already know to keep your ears peeled throughout the week, because this Monday brings a heapin' helpin' of the wildcard episode digressions I aggressively court and then serve up piping hot for our Patreons. This Monday, we're kicking the week off right with Part 2 of the Corey Hansen Patreon Collection, which is burst at the seams with incandescently nerdy music discussions. And then there's this Wednesday's incredible Patreon-only episode of Discography's slag-off series, Queasy Listening. This week, Joe Kennedy and I tear James's laid a mile-wide asshole. But hey, at the end of the day, even Brian Eno's allowed one mistake. Make sure you visit patreon.com slash discography and check out the thematically related deep dive as a music obsessive's way of life. Our Patreon's been up and running for a year now, and with two episodes a week coming at you, there are now over 100 Patreon episodes. That's an entire universe of indispensable music podcasts available to you for the price of a cup of coffee a week. And of course, be sure to mark your calendars, because next Friday, November 24th, Thanksgiving adjacent, we're coming at you with an exclusive interview with Testament's lead guitarist, Alex Skolnick. Trust me, you're not going to want to miss it. And so, from now till then, don't let our youth go to waste, lads and ladies. It's Discography. Discography.